You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We're going to do something strange and interesting this week. <laughs> I have on video conference with me my distinguished colleague, Kia Wilson. Kia, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you, Chuck Marone. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. When we have job openings, we get hundreds of applicants, and I think people think that this is a really cool place to work. I personally think that. And I, I think one of the things that is interesting about working here is that we all agree on certain maybe bedrock principles or a certain approach or mindset, but we are not necessarily in lockstep on every detail and how that manifests. And I think some of the great things about this organization are the conversations we have trying to learn and discover from each other all kinds of things that maybe are outside of our experiences. You and I have very different, uh, but I think very strong opinions on one particular company uh, that dominates American retail today, that being Amazon. And we've been kind of prompted by our other colleagues to talk about them in a podcast in front of everybody. So you and I have not really had this conversation, but we're going to today. So are you ready for this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nervous, but you know, don't we'll be nervous. I'm excited to learn from you because I think we come from really different backgrounds and perspectives on this. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just have a lot of respect and admiration and terror of your intellect. So it'll be, <laughs> well, vice versa. See what comes out of this. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned a lot just in the few months that you've been here too. So I really would like to learn from you, you know, your apprehensions. So, I will start and I will start because what I really like do not want this podcast to become is you saying something and then me like <laughs> mansplaining why you're wrong. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I, I realize you would not take it that way, but I don't want this to be like point counterpoint. So I'll give you like my, how I came to this and then maybe you can do the likewise. And then I'll probably have some questions and you'll have some questions and we can explore. So you know, I grew up in this small town, Brainerd, Minnesota. When I was a kid, when we would go school clothes shopping, would do one of two things. We would either order from the JCPenney's catalog, or we would drive an hour down to a city called St. Cloud and go to the, the mall there where they would have a selection of clothes, largely from JCPenney's. I grew up in 90% of my wardrobe was what the JCPenney's mannequin was wearing. <laughs> so I remember when I was dating my wife when we were really, you know, I mean, we started dating. I have a 13-year-old now, and so dating has a different connotation for me than it did when I was 13 years old. Uh, my wife was 14 and I was 15 when we met and started hanging out together. And uh, I remember, like, you know, buying her Christmas presents, including clothes that I would order from a JCPenney's catalog. And you had to be very strategic about it. You had to be pretty sure that this relationship was going to last because it would take six weeks for your stuff to arrive when you would order it. 
you know, I would go and pick out a wardrobe for myself for school. You'd have to order that in the middle of July if you wanted it by the first day. And of course, when you got there, some other poor schlub who only had the same options you did uh, had the same shirt and pant mix because that's what the mannequin in the catalog was wearing. When Walmart opened here, it was like life changing, really. And I remember at the time, and this is, you know, 91, I was gone for a summer in the army uh, at basic training between my junior and senior year of high school. And I came back to start my senior year. And during that summer, we had gotten Walmart. And I remember walking through Walmart going, oh my gosh, like none of this stuff was available here before. Like how would we, how would we have ever gotten these, you know, these things in a sense? And I remember being like very, feeling very pro Walmart and pro the shopping experience that I was able to get. We can fast forward now through like my early days as an engineer, my time as a planner, where I kind of made this evolution in thinking, not really driven by my consumptive habits. I never felt guilty about buying things at Walmart. You know, it was, you know, I would go there and get things, but, but more because I've started to understand like the financial implications of this, like this development pattern makes no sense. And my affinity for Main Street kind of grew out of that, out of the notion that, you know, not that these retailers were like heroes and, uh, you know, I would pay $15 for a hammer downtown instead of 10 because I wanted to support the downtown businesses, but literally an understanding that like this model is making us broke and this model is going to be our salvation. We better buy some insurance and invest in this salvation. So along comes Amazon. And to me, Amazon, I've always viewed as like the bridge between for a city like mine and for, you know, cities of, of all sizes, really, but really my own experience, I've looked at it as a bridge between the phase out of the big box stores and kind of the, the collapse of that uh, approach and the establishment of something viable as an alternative in my hometown. I don't think that I will ever buy an iPod manufactured in Brainerd, Minnesota. I don't think that I will ever buy toothpaste that is made in Brainerd, Minnesota. So there's this collection of things that are going to be made and, and brought to my community from somewhere else. And I think the question becomes like, what is the transmission mechanism for that happening? Right now, it is a big box store and a chain gas station that serves as like a local convenience store. I think someday in the future, it will be you know, local shops, but that will always be supplemented with essentially the modern version of the JCPenney's Sears Roebuck Montgomery Ward catalog, which is Amazon.com. And I'm very comfortable with that relationship. So that's my backstory. I want to give you a chance to give yours and then maybe we can discuss this, uh, you know, continued amicably. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you so much for spelling that all out for me and giving me that visual of a of a mannequin in JC Penney's <laughs> with baby Chuck Marone standing next to it. Um, that's my kids, helpful. I still have Stella help me, you know, match my, she's like, no, that doesn't go together, dad. That does. <laughs> so whenever I'm going on a trip, Stella's like my mannequin, you know, like, here you go, dad. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I also grew up in somewhat of a department store childhood. I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, primarily. You know, I wasn't quite writing in for a six week order, but I was born in 1987 before the, like the rise and surge of online retail generally and Amazon specifically. So I hear what you're saying and I know what, what you're getting at, but um, to understand why I feel the way I do about Amazon, you have to know that first I'm a writer and I've been studying writing. I actually went to art sporting school when I was 14. I had a major when I was like a teenager, basically. And from the really early days of when I was a writer, this is just my point of entry into a larger question. I had people, teachers and other writers saying how important it was to support the industry. If I wanted to publish a book someday, if I wanted to be a writer myself, that you have to buy the work of other writers, you have to show up at their readings at your local bookstore. And the way that you make the world you want to see is you vote with your dollar. And um, Amazon was starting to exist. I'm trying to remember around what year they were actually founded. I think it was like 97. Um, but- yeah. I want to say it was about then because I actually wound up accidentally buying barnesandnoble.com when I mm-hmm. meant to buy Barnes & Noble, the bookstore stocks in like, <laughs> yeah, like 97, 98. And that was yeah. like a horrible investment. And Amazon went the other way, obviously. Yeah. Um, So Amazon came of age as I did, I think, around that time. And I shopped there for many years when I was, uh, you know, in high school. I thought that supporting, giving any money to an author was giving money to an author and I could get a cheaper price on Amazon. It was extending my access to more and more books. And I've always been someone with like a hundred dollar a month book bill, much to the chagrin of the people who have Uh, you're looking at my like (laughs) a 10th of my book collection on the video screen. And you're looking at a 10th of mine. We both have. That's true. I see it in the background. Mine's color coded. (laughs) Um, But in any case, I didn't really see the issue with it until I started becoming interested in how cities were built and in economics more generally in college. I think probably for the sake of time, I'll fast forward to when I was working at an independent bookstore. I worked at um, a store called Left Bank Books in St. Louis for a little under four years. And it became really clear to me in from the conversations that I had in that industry that Amazon was not just, I think I would disagree with your characterization of the Chuck as a sort of modern alternative to Macy's that's friendlier, that doesn't have um, any concrete on the ground outside of the occasional fulfillment center, but it actually is a business that is quite interested in cannibalizing by design mean street businesses that I loved and independent bookstores that I had come to really support. And when you extend that out over other industries and look at how they've affected not just the big box stores and not just even small bookstores, but businesses of all kinds, it's a pretty staggering effect. I don't think that their vision for themselves as a company is to be a complement to the kind of Main Street businesses we all know and love. I think it's to exterminate them. I really do. And I've been reading and talking about Amazon for about 10 years now. And when I started talking about it, I would sound a little bit like a conspiracy theorist. And I was like, look at all the (laughs) industries that they might get into. And slowly, a lot of my prophecies have come true. I mean, Amazon is now interested not just in selling you a book, which is where they started, but in making the movies you watch and selling you 
cloud storage, which when they blink off, it's a huge problem for the entire internet, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, of owning the mechanism on which you talk about products, of owning newspapers. Um, well, Jeff Bezos owns a newspaper, not Amazon itself, but they have a really a reach that they keep secret and don't talk about very broadly, but I'm uncomfortable with the scope of what they seem to want to do. And I think it runs counter to how I understand strong fans, but I'm very curious why you think it doesn't. <laughs> Can we split this into three different areas? I think and in, in listening to you, I see like the first area being authors and books and the second area being like a, a competitor with main street retail and the third area being this like omnipresent take over your life, big brother kind of entity. Yeah. <laughs> can, can we just for the sake of the conversation, can we split it into like three and explore those differently? Sure. Okay. Cause the author one is interesting to me because you may or may not know this, but I've written a couple of books. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just, it's, it's funny because I'm a guy who writes and I have a story to tell. And you would think that someone who writes who has a story to tell would be a natural person to, to write books. I can tell you that I originally tried to go the traditional route of writing a book and was very, very frustrated with it. Now that frustration might be my personality. It very likely are, are shortcomings that I brought to the table as opposed to a potential agent, a potential publisher, a potential whatever. But like I have a book on my computer completely done that I wrote that I actually think was pretty good uh, that nobody has any interest in. And they don't have any interest in because essentially the uh, the Venn diagram of people who are interested in baseball and people who are interested in cities uh, is not seen as supportive of a, of a book deal. So I actually sat down and you know what? That might not be a bad business decision. I'm fully satisfied with a publishing company saying to me, Chuck, this is not a book that we're willing to invest money in. Okay. But I'll tell you who is. Amazon is. And I decided like three years ago that I wanted to pursue writing. I wanted to publish a book. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a book of my best posts, the best things that I've written on the blog. And I'm going to edit them and expand them and put footnotes in and all this and provide context. And I'm going to publish that as a self-published book just to go through the process and see how it works. Because clearly I'm not going to get the work as I see it, as I want it out there, uh, done traditionally without basically like rewriting it in a way that I did not want to do and did not think was like honest to who I was. And guess what? I could do that very easily with Amazon. They published what I wrote. Uh, thousands of people bought it. It was not like a huge commercial success, but it got my message in front of people in a way that I thought was important. You know, I've subsequently published a Kindle only book and then another, you know, we did last year as an organization did another version of thoughts on building strong towns. I feel like it has given me as a creative person access to a process and a market that I felt was controlled by essentially you could say the man or controlled by like some mystical process that I otherwise could not access. Even though I, I you know, I'm going to put forth, I'm a fairly smart guy and a, a decent writer and have things that people want to read. To me, I've felt Amazon as like a, a warm, comfortable support system when the hard, cold world of publishing was not. 
Well, I'm glad that you have that warm (laughs) (laughs) in self-publishing. I'm actually, a lot of writers these days will talk smack on self-publishing. I'm not one of them. Um, One of my roles in the bookstore actually was to read consignment titles. And I think that there are some books like the one you're describing quite possibly that the reason they haven't found publication through traditional publishers is because they really are better suited for a self-publishing model. The author is a better fit for it. The author has the time and resources and passion to produce a book themselves, market it, and have complete creative control over every aspect of the process. Um, I don't. I, I think that we have to be careful, though, about saying that Amazon is synonymous with self-publishing, and um, because there are many other self-publishing outlets out there, even though Amazon is by far the largest, or that self-publishing is something we should trade for traditional publishing. I think that we would be in a lot of trouble if we did that. And again, going back to my thesis that Amazon is sort of search and destroy scorched earth in a lot of their business practices, I do think that their vision for the book industry is more um, winner take all, everyone, authors become publishers. And that's actually in the long run going to disenfranchise more people than it actually enfranchises. Um, Let me ask you this. Yeah. Are, are you are you too young for the Dave Matthews band? No. I'm no. Not. Okay. So, so no, I, I know like there's a certain age where you, when you get too young, there's like a certain level of disdain for the Dave Matthews band. But like that was my early marriage years band. And uh, my wife and I have gone to many concerts. If you listen to like early Dave Matthews band, it is very like honest to this garage band jam kind of roots that they had. And it's very like non not good for radio in a sense. The songs go on, they kind of loop around. There's a lot of jam to it. But when you get to like their middle albums, that's when they started to become like a pop success. And they would go into the studio and they would be engineered and the songs would be three minutes and 18 seconds long so that they could run on radio. And they were good. I mean, I enjoyed them, but they weren't as honest and creative as, as the original stuff. I kind of felt like Amazon gave me a platform to reach a lot of people and a very easy platform. I mean, self-publishing, I I did look at other independent self-publishers and it was not as friendly, way more work. And I didn't feel like I was going to reach as many people as easily. Amazon gave me all of that. And they allowed me to be the garage band jam band where the standard publisher wanted me to write like pop songs um, in a way that I thought was just like not consistent with my message or what, what I was trying to do. Well, without um, disputing your experience whatsoever. You can, um, you can, you can tell me I'm blind to things. I'm, I'm a big guy. I can handle (laughs) it. Well, I don't want to tell you you're blind to things. I want to tell you that I think that the experience you're describing is not everyone's experience with self-publishing. And again, we're talking about, we're sort of conflating Amazon and self-publishing one more time, even though they might be the best self-publisher, like the most successful place to self-publish a book. But um, I there are statistics that Amazon... I don't remember the number and I hate being that person who quotes a statistic and doesn't have an actual number in front of them, but give me a range. Like what is your over 90% of self-published books never make a dime. The author pays to produce them in the form of their time. Um, And they don't have this experience of being Dave Matthews band and also getting to have the garage. Um, I I see what you're saying about traditional publishing, but I also want to say that, It sounds like to you, traditional publishing was a gatekeeper, your experience, at least this time. And it might be different 
next time out, um, was a gatekeeper that, that like shut you out and told you come back to me when you've written a pop song. My experience with traditional publishing, I published a book through an imprint of Simon and Schuster in the fall, um, was they let me in. They gave me the biggest paycheck of my adult life (laughs) for something that I had made. They connected me with an editor who made the book insurmountably better. It was a fit for what I wanted to do with the project. And it was kind of a creative dream. I'm very wary of a model that would say that, the best way for writers to get in the door is for every single writer. And I'm not disputing that for some writers, this is going to be the case would be to publish for free, um, not be compensated for that, not work with anyone, get it, put it on a website, throw it out into the void where chances are no one will ever read it or take advantage of it and hope that, you know, lightning strikes, frankly. And if lightning strikes, then that company for the privilege of um, doing it is going to take a little bit of a cut. I I don't know. There's just something about that that feels disingenuous to me when you look at the actual numbers of 200,000 plus um, eBooks published a year. Like that's your success story is a minority. And there are some really compelling but that. let me, and, and I think it's easy for me to, I mean, it's easy for when something works out to go back and create an, a backstory and say, like, this is what everybody should do. I want to give like the music analogy, because I think that the music industry is equally hard and difficult and, and in a sense kind of screwed up. If you would have gone back to Chuck Marone at age 15 and said, what are you going to do for a living? I'd say I was going to be a musician. That's what I was going to do. And when you look at the music industry, the way that you get to be a paid musician who does this for a living is you do a lot of like, un, you know, very like low level stuff. In Minneapolis, I was in a band at one point that we were looking at, you know, wanting basically you play the five to six o'clock hour for free. And if you can get enough people to come and buy beer during your set, because you were popular enough, they would move you next time to the six to seven o'clock hour. And if you were, you know, good enough there, they'd move you to the eight to nine. And basically you moved your way. And the only people who really got paid were the last couple of sets because they were like the big draw for the evening. It created kind of like a meritocracy that I'm, I guess, kind of comfortable with the notion that if you're really good here, you'll get moved up and you'll get moved up and you'll get moved up. That meant that there was a lot of really crappy bands at five to six, but every now and then you'd get something that was really hot and original. It would kind of rise up to the top. To me, the, the self-publishing model, you're going to have 200,000 books a year, 90% plus, which absolutely like do nothing. But if it was all like forced to go through a traditional model, instead of having 200,000 books a year, you'd have 10,000 books a year. And, you know, yeah, they may as a, as a percentage be better for the authors. Uh, but you would have a lot less thought, a lot less idea and a lot less like dreamers coming up with stuff and, and essentially putting it out there and, and moving it up. We're not going to go back to the 1800s where like every saloon had a piano player who could make a living doing that. You know, and every small town had a writer and an actor and all this stuff. And you had like a place for creative people, creative people today essentially are people who have other jobs and, you know, eke out a living there and then have a creative outlet somewhere else. I feel like in that type of a world, um, Amazon's just, you know, it, it is, it is, uh, a necessity in a sense. 
I don't want to say that Amazon is a necessity. I think that the kind of self-publishing you're talking about is a necessity. The fact that it's wedded to a company that also wants to dismantle the traditional publishing model in almost all of its business practice, that's what it's illustrative of. That's what I take issue with. Um, I mean, I do want to kind of stick on your point that I, I hear what you're saying about this vision that, you know, like a musician starting out in a you know smoky little club you can you're talking about successive meritocracy where you successively like work one step at a time right, right. and you work your way up right. i want to just sort of dispute the idea that traditional publishing a doesn't isn't like that because i worked and studied and you know took a lot of steps before i published my book it wasn't like i was just like found on the street like clutching a manuscript down in the gutter and someone like <laughs> scraped me up i got an mfa that'd be a great book a. though right it would be. um but the difference is that when i went through those steps um i didn't of like actually writing a damn book which is as you know is so much work really so hard work. yeah so hard, um, especially if you are, do not have that second career, which at certain phases in certain writers' lives, they don't. When I went through those steps, I was written a check for my work before it sold. And um, I will say that I, I'm, I don't write pop songs. Like the, the novel that I wrote, I think is pretty challenging. And um, because it's people don't really know where to place it in the bookstore. Is it horror? Is it literary fiction? That kind of a thing. And I will say that the, the business model of traditional publishing is takes a lot more risks than you'd think they would precisely oh, yeah. because of this money. Like I'm published by Scribner, which published, I don't know if you've read the book, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dower. You know what? My, my wife, who is a reader, has said, uh -huh. like, you have to read this book. Yeah, it's a marvelous book. They published it. It spent over, I think over two years on the New York Times bestseller list, made Scribner a colossal amount of money. And the way the traditional publishing tends to work is they have these runaway bestsellers. Every house has theirs now and again, and they reinvest those money into total unknowns. Like when I published my book, I had three literary publication <laughs> credits to my name. They just liked my work. They thought it was a little risky and they paid me. Would I have made out better by like hoping that a whole bunch of individual readers collectively took a chance on me if I just like published something with my terrible like MS Paint cover design on right, Amazon? Right. Probably not. Yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah. I hear it's you. A model that is, it's hard for me to say is better um, because. So, let me ask it, you this. It worked for me. I feel like, mm -hmm. in a way, you're arguing for one diffused set of corporate oligarchies versus you know, over one centralized corporate oligarchy, um, <laughs> you know, are, by defending, you know, Simon and Schuster, which I'm sure is full of great people and they're doing great work, but they're not exactly like altruistically trying to save the world through good publishing. I mean, they're, they're a big corporate entity. Part of the pushback that I got was they looked at my book and maybe rightly so. I'm not even questioning this. They looked at it as, you know, did it have a real market? Was it, you know, uh, worthy of in that investment? Because we probably wouldn't get it back. They, they didn't give you money because, you know, they're a charity. They gave you money because they thought your book would sell enough copies to justify it and had the potential to sell a lot of copies. I mean, they, they do need to, you know, every now and then have a big hit that they didn't anticipate. Are you defending one set of corporate structures over another? And, you know, is there really that much of a distinction between the two? 
Well, I will say I have my critiques with corporate publishing and that is what traditional, the kind of traditional publishing we've been talking about so far can be grouped under this. Simon & Schuster is owned by CBS, you know, like all five of the big five New York publishers are owned by larger conglomerates and there are issues with all of them. I mean, Simon & Schuster was in the spotlight a lot this year because one of the big risks they wanted to take was publishing Milo Yiannopoulos's biography, which was really controversial. And that money that he probably would have made um, because he has a large following, yes, could have gone to subsidize lots of little writers like me. Um, but they ultimately made the decision to drop the book. But it raised some real questions for myself and a lot of Simon & Schuster authors about what gambles we're making when we work with a large corporate publisher in traditional publishing. With that said, did Simon & Schuster buy my book and books like mine because they thought that it would make them money? Probably partly yes and partly no. A thing that I've heard a lot from my editor is that she is investing in me as an author in the long term. She wants to work with me on subsequent books. (laughs) If this individual book didn't sell a whole lot of copies, I guess if it bombed and was a PR disaster, like probably they'd drop me. But it's more an experience that you know, 80% of books, I think is roughly the number, never make back their initial advance. And those writers go on to continue to publish. Um, It's not as simple as books, corporate publishing commodifies books in this very like cold and calculating way. And Amazon, you know, lets us and self-publishing platforms like it, let it like the scrappy little nobodies kind of like rise to the top on their own merits. Um, It's a little bit more complex than that. And I've seen some of the Publishers' PL statements that support this. You know, I mean, like they're subsidizing, it's much more like the sort of anti fragile thinking that we talk about at Strong Towns, yeah. where they're buying a whole bunch of stuff hoping one right. works out. Right. And people don't get churned out of that system in exactly the way that you're talking about, at least not universally. I'm not saying they never do. Right. No, I, I, I definitely appreciate it. It's a little bit like the film industry where, you know, a, a film house will put out 10 movies. Uh, knowing that like two or three of them will be absolute bombs, uh, but hoping that one of them or two of them will be a runaway success. And essentially it's instead of doing one sure thing, i.e. one pop album, uh, you put out 10 and, you know, hedge your bets in a sense. So yeah, I agree. You've got the anti-fragile nature of it. There's a part of me that I found Amazon really empowering personally as an author Part of that is because I built up a following on the blog. I go around and give talks. I mean, I had a, I had, I had my own kind of venue for getting stuff out that kind of lent itself well to selling a book. Not every author is going to have that. I, I agree. Um, but not every author has gone to college to be a writer and has connections in the writing industry. And, you know, I do think that you're among people who aspire to write. I do think that both of our stories are probably non-representative of the the typical. Yeah. Oh yeah. So there's this other aspect of Amazon with the Ma and Pa challenge to kind of Ma and Pa retail. And I I see a little bit of the same dynamic here. I worked in a small town uh, north of where I live uh, a decade ago. And we had people there who had essentially seasonal tourist shops they were selling birdhouses and, you know, little knickknacks, but it was actually things that they manufactured on site. But they had a season of like four months up there. I mean, it was very, very tight season, maybe a little bit in the winter, but people really weren't coming to their shop in the winter when they were out snowmobiling and ice fishing and what have you. 
they said that they had tripled their revenue through Amazon. They were able to list their prices on list their stuff on Amazon Marketplace. They had built up a reputation as a supplier, essentially a seller. They would collect orders. They would turn them around and, uh, you know, UPS would come and pick them up and deliver them. They didn't have to worry about shipping. They didn't have to worry about having an online store. They didn't have to worry about anything except continuing to do the stuff that they did really well, which is, you know, create these knickknacks, we'll call them. And Amazon got them access to this huge marketplace. I looked at that and thought, you know, as a corollary to me being able to live in a small town and buy nice clothes and, and nice things that I could never get here, uh, you know, that keeps me here as opposed to, you know, moving somewhere else. This was a really nice way for people to supplement their income and make a business that otherwise wouldn't be here viable. I get that there's a downside to that. Why don't you describe the downside to that? I would love to describe the downside because I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, I think you're absolutely right, but not to be a broken record, I think we have to be really careful about conflating the dominant online retailer, Amazon.com, with all of online retail. I have nothing against a mom and pop shop building a platform online, selling globally, creating more of a global commerce marketplace. I wish that there existed, I was talking to someone on Slack about this the other day, an Amazon that would basically, um, what's the word I'm looking for, aggregate all of these independent businesses across the country and allow them to sell directly through an easily searchable forum. That would be wonderful. I have nothing against that. The issue with Amazon is you have to look at their business model. Amazon, I'll take books as an example, comes a lot of people's bookstores, small mom pop bookstores sell books on Amazon. I think something like 87% of Amazon's goods are actually other yeah. people's goods. A, I, I buy them all the time because you can go and it'll be like the book is $20, but then you can buy a used one from someone for 8 Definitely. And, and I would say check out biblio.com if you would like to see the <laughs> used book um, marketplace just for this. But in any case... Um, Amazon's business model in the book industry was basically to come in, use books as a loss leader, um, price it lower than any store could potentially price it and like in any universe because books are unique and that they have a fixed cover price that book, no bookseller can charge more. If you run a bookstore in San Francisco and the coffee shop next door is charging like $14 for a latte or whatever it is, you still have to charge $28 for that hardcover. You don't have a choice. You can only go down. So Amazon comes in and practices what is essentially predatory pricing to force their competitors out of the market. And then at the last minute, we'll come in with a Hail Mary and say, we can save you by giving you a global marketplace um, because we own 40% of online retail, something like that, you just have to give us a cut. You have to basically support your competitor because not only are we a bookseller, we're also a platform for sales. That contributes to a centralization of power and a lack of competition that I'm not willing to support as someone who's interested in economics. I'm absolutely willing to support a more ethical version of online retail that would do what you're describing. I just don't think that people should have to feed the beast in the process. There is a certain part of the Amazon business business model that uh, I think is is not viable long term. And I mean, this is my version of saying what you're saying. I think you know, when Amazon sells things at a loss, there's a certain amount of time that that ceases working. 
I don't own any Amazon stock. I mean, I, I guess I'll say that. I don't own any Amazon competitor stock. I look at Amazon's price and valuation and it seems insane to me. I mean, it is, it has seemed insane to me for a decade now. And for a company that loses money every quarter, I have no clue why people would continue to invest in them. It's all based on this future speculation of market dominance. And, and I, I remember, I'm not too old of a guy here. Uh, I remember when there were all the antitrust lawsuits against Microsoft. Uh, because Microsoft, you know, issued Windows and then they had the products that would run on Windows and they would run best with Windows. And, uh, they had, you know, what in a sense people felt was a monopoly in the marketplace. And then in very quick order, as people were fighting against the evil Microsoft corporate dominance, uh, everything shifted and you had Google and Google Docs and all of a sudden, like all the stuff that we were, told was a monopoly that no one ever could compete with. There were competitors out there like taking it down. I do kind of feel like Amazon, yes, do they do the Walmart tactic of saying, you know, we will buy that toilet paper that you're manufacturing, but only if you sell it to us at, you know, 0.1% above cost. Yeah, they do. Like that's brutal. I mean, they do that kind of thing. And what it does is it drives manufacturers out of, competition and it's 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 brute it's ruthlessly brutal i kind of feel like that model of capitalism has a shelf life anyway because it's really really brittle and i i see a day when a lot more stuff is manufactured locally just because energy costs go up and transportation costs go up and it doesn't make i mean those those margin creating tactics go away and in that world, I think not only are there local Amazon competitors, but I think that, you know, Amazon becomes like a vital part of a, of a national economic ecosystem that is actually filling in some of those gaps. I'll point to local food as being an example of this. I mean, you can order food from Amazon and Amazon will, will deliver it to you. They cannot do it cheaper on many, many things than what I can buy here locally because of transportation costs, because of, you know, refrigeration costs, all these other things. I think as those costs go up, what you're going to see is more and more local, essentially production becomes more viable. I guess what I'm saying is that perceived dominance today to me feels really, really fragile. I agree that it's really fragile. Um, and I wish that investors agreed that it was fragile because as you point out, um, it hasn't made sense for you for 10 years. Amazon is very close to the chest about their financials, but it's speculated that they didn't, they operated at a loss for their first 20 years. Um, and they continue to post losses on like quarter and quarter. There's, um, a, there's always this, when they do their earnings release, there's always, uh, there's always an article somewhere, the snarky one saying, you know, thank you, Amazon investors for supporting my free shipping, you know? Yeah. Cause it, it, it makes no sense from a, from a valuation standpoint. It really doesn't. It, it only makes sense if they are going to take over our entire economy. Everything. Everything. <laughs> um, like that's the yeah. only way that that bet makes sense is playing the super long game. And, you know, I, I as agree I said, with in my you article, there. Jeff Bezos has a 10,000, a clock that's designed to last 10,000 years built in his backyard like a Batman villain. <laughs> you know, I mean, like he's not very subtle about his aspirations for his. 
me. But when it comes to things like grocery, I wanted to point out, I just was reading something as I was writing the article about how Amazon is actually slowly starting to get into brick and mortar retail, big box brick and mortar retail. And their pilot testing for grocery, because you're right, they've struggled in grocery for years, um, is they're building in India. They've built like five stores in India and they're seeing if they can find a way to build a store in an underserved area and train people to use online as into, as like internet infrastructure slowly starts to build up in that country and make Amazon synonymous with just where you buy things as they have all their branding suggests they like to do. While I agree, yes, that eventually their model in a sane world <laughs> would become brittle and would falter on its own by the laws of normal economics, not like bizarro world Wall Street economics. I am not super, super confident that the local retailers will exist or will have the capital to start by the time that happens if they get their way. So I'm unwilling to just like continue to support them and let the experiment sort of run its like inevitable economic course. Um, and like, have my cake and eat it too because I'm a consumer because I'm making less money. I'm interested in the long-term health of our economy and I don't think supporting Amazon is supporting that health. Mm -hmm. I respect that to the extent that I think it's a nice thought. I think this is what you get into with investing too because I, I've, I'm very conflicted in investing my own savings and my own money. I've actually been pretty diligent since I got out of college on saving a percent of my income every year. So I, I'm 43 now. Uh, I've been doing this for a couple of decades. I actually have what I, I, you know, what to me is like a significant amount of, of savings at this point. There's this kind of troubled notion you have of, do you fight the machine or not? Everything seems to be geared at the top down level to a certain style of economics, whether you know, it's the federal reserve, uh, buying mortgages and, and, you know, pumping down interest rates, uh, or whether it's, you know, the Obama administration, now the Trump administration making investments in a certain style of growth and development that is very much not Main Street and not the type of stuff that I think is viable long term. And when they do make those investments, they're kind of like boutique, like, isn't that cute? Look, we built a solar panel on, you know, kind of stuff. So how much do you fight the man? I mean, how much do you say, like, I'm willing to spend $15 on that hammer uh, just to spite the man, even though I could go get it at for 10 from Home Depot. How much do you say, like, this is an investment I'm going to make because it's the right thing to do? Really, I think the bigger question is, maybe that's where your heart is, but how scalable is that amongst... Because there's tons of movements out there. Like, the whole buy local movement is... You know, if we all band together and fight against the man, we can recreate local economies. And it's like, well, yeah, but okay, you know, that's a that's great in theory, but people aren't doing that. Well, I think this sort of comes to what we talk about on Strong Towns all the time about doing the math and you know, you've been talking about individual consumer choice, me personally, Kia Wilson, going out and buying a hammer at the establishment that drives best with my ethics. But we are urging citizens and local governments all the time to invest public money into development that's going to generate wealth. So maybe another way to phrase this question would be, does it make sense for a local government to invest money in an Amazon fulfillment center 
or a big box or a block of small stores. I think that an Amazon fulfillment center is a terrible goddamn investment. I think it's language. Uh, oh my for, 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 <laughs> for, yeah, you can't swear on our podcast. Sorry, I don't it's know. Okay. How, like, <laughs> they, they, uh, <laughs> there's no doubt that as a public investment, these are horrible investments. Right? Well, there's no, there's no question there, right? Yeah. It's yeah. a big box store on steroids that's going to vampire yeah. thousands of jobs out of your community and thousands of businesses that would make you more money. Right. And I've argued many times that I think that if cities want to do themselves a favor, they'll actually slow down the velocity within their communities. I actually think that a healthy Amazon um, would essentially be like the Montgomery Wards catalog, where you would order the thing that you couldn't get locally. Uh, and it would take, you know, a week to get there. And then you would have it. Um, but if you had to have it tomorrow, you would go locally to someplace and pay a premium. But most of the stuff that was for sale locally would be stuff that would be produced and manufactured locally. Stuff that actually like made sense, more sense to do than to, you know, follow Ricardo's theory and have this place over here create this and this place over here create this. And then we put all our money into shipping everything. When I look out into the future, if we're drawing a distinction, like, Amazon as employer, local employer, bad investment. Amazon as like big fulfillment center tax base, really bad investment. Like to me as local governments, I, I don't want any part of that. I'm not bending over to do any of that. I'm bending over to slow down the velocity of my community and actually give Main Street a shot. You know, I'm reconnecting my neighborhoods. I'm creating that local ecological system. But to me... To make that viable, and even you know, twenty years from now, if that's massively successful, I think you'll still be seeing uh, things shipped in from outside, and that would be on like a, a smaller, scaled down version of an of an Amazon, which I actually think is a is a healthy thing. I agree. I wish that it weren't tied to a company with their specific ethics and business practices, that they weren't interested. If I would, again, I would support the hell out of a company that all they were interested in doing was gathering up all of the goods from all of our local independent businesses and even our bigger businesses, shipping them out um, and flowing money through our economy in a fabulous web. <laughs> um, I think that Amazon is not that company. And when we pick and choose amongst their business practices, the ones we like, that's where we get into trouble because they have so many and they're hard to decode and they're deliberately opaque. But I think that we can be more creative and we can do better for our cities. Let me, let me ask you just a theoretical question then. Yeah. Because you, you're describing, you know, Amazon is like the vampire squid, right? The, yes. uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yet I, I would also say like, isn't that the nature of large systems? I tend to be like a conservative, limited government kind of person. When you describe the evil of Amazon and the impersonal nature <laughs> of it, I, I see this strong corollary with government. I see it with Amazon. I see it with Walmart. I see it with, quite frankly, CBS and Simon and Schuster and the big publishing companies. I, I feel like this is the nature of large systems. And if we want things to be not blood sucking, you know, vampire squids, they actually have to be localized to like the greatest degree possible. And to me, Amazon, is an agent of localization. It's destroying Walmart. It's destroying Target. It's it's actually creating space in an environment for other people to to start to to do things. 
I, like I said at the beginning, I feel like it's a transitionary type of, of business model. Um, but I think it's one that is like a necessary part of a, a transition. You, you gave me this weird look like when I said they're destroying Walmart and they're destroying Target. You gave me this look like, are you insane? Why, because why they're did- also destroying everybody else. <laughs> you know, like that's such selective reasoning. Um, I mean, here's an example. We've, we've been talking about traditional corporate publishing for a long time. Small publishers exist too. We haven't really acknowledged them. Sure. In your home state of Minnesota, they're huge. Amazon had a large... Um, initiative called the gazelle project which jeff bezos himself named it that um which was supposed to be his agents going to small publishers and saying give me a discount that i know you can't sustain so that i can continue to operate at like the absolute smallest price possible and sell your books to the public customers and he called it that because as a lion goes after a sickly gazelle, so does Amazon have to go after the smallest competitors if it wants to eventually own the entire market. I just think it's it's selective um, listening and selective observation to say that all they do is destroy big box. I'm all for destroying big box. I don't drop in them if I can avoid it whatsoever. I would much rather have a um, more global comprehensive network of small businesses and a small business development pattern that makes their cities really livable. But I don't think that Amazon is like, you have to take the good with the bad and the bad is really, really bad potentially. Yeah. And maybe this is just limited by my personal experience, but you know, the big box strip that I cheered as a kid coming back from the army destroyed our downtown. I mean, is, is gone. And actually a lot of our downtown was destroyed before then because on the other side of town, they built a mall and a Pomida, which is like a small town big box before there was big box. Uh, we had a, the, what is called the new mall, which is actually built in the mid eighties was over uh, on the other side of town then. And between those things, it was like a death knell to downtown. The, the big box stores actually started to cannibalize those malls. I feel like we're talking about like the T-Rex and the whatever, like the big version of a huge dinosaur, like, <laughs> you know, eating up like all the small little wildlife around. And then like another T-Rex comes in and now they're going to fight and one of them's going to be dead. And I'm, I'm looking at this fight going, okay, I really am not cheering for either of you because I know neither of you have like good intentions for me. But if I had to pick between the two of you, I don't want the target Walmart big box conglomerate. I'd rather have the Amazon one because I actually see how Amazon could be mutually beneficial to me in in a way that Target and Walmart and Costco and uh and Home Depot never ever will be. Amazon is not in conflict with a development pattern that is viable for a city. It might not be like the best economics and I'm I'm willing to go there like if if Jeff Bezos takes over the world and like everything is run through an Amazon fulfillment center and distri- you know, that like, I don't, I think that's a very fragile model and I don't think it survives, but you know, yeah, that's not a great thing. I actually think that a world with Amazon is one that gives local retailers over the long term a legitimate shot, especially as I think energy prices go up, transportation costs go up, infrastructure becomes more difficult to maintain and our economies become more localized. I think that Amazon uh, provides a, a better business model for that type of an environment than this like continued trying to prop up Walmart, Costco, et cetera. Sure. And you think it's a better business model just because it's fewer 
like big concrete boxes or because of how they ship. Um, I mean, like, let's talk about what Amazon actually builds because they don't build, they do build something, but they don't build much. And we haven't really talked about like how they actually are using our roads, which they are. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. There have been yeah. some really interesting articles in the last few years about like how Amazon, like what we're actually paying for when we want all of our consumer goods to be shipped to our door rather than going out on our feet and getting them. Right. Um, my my wife and I have um, this ongoing debate, but I shouldn't like speak for her here. I will try <laughs> to, and then, you know, she can say I'm wrong. We'll get her on the next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's pretty much refused up to this point. Um, she <laughs> has a Costco membership and she is like a buy in bulk Costco person. I hate Costco. I just, I hate driving out to it. I hate the environment. I hate walking around in the store. It just makes, I just, I, there's nothing about it I like, but, but I will order, you know, my cereal from Amazon and I will get four boxes at a time and I'll put three boxes on the shelf in the basement and it'll take me six weeks to eat them. And then I'll order another four boxes. Her argument is she drives out once to Costco, fills up the car for the month you know, comes back and then puts things in the basement. She said, you're wasting because you're having, you know, a truck delivered to you, you know, three times a week. And I, I, I get that. Like I, that is an argument that has some sense to me. On the other hand, I know that like the UPS guy is just going down the street and delivering everything to everybody every day. It's not like he made a special trip from the warehouse in Minneapolis to my door you know, are all these people in my neighborhood spending energy to drive to Costco routinely or are we all staying home and not driving all that much? And then one truck comes and delivers to me. I actually find that second model to be like less wasteful and more efficient. I can see a point in time in the future when my city and cities all over the country are not able to borrow the money, of you know, finance this kind of crazy wide streets and we actually, our places become more by default walkable. More people are biking, more people are walking that Amazon actually just delivers to like the corner store. And we all walk down there, like to the post office and pick it up. And it basically becomes like the modern version of the post office, except with maybe a little bit bigger packages. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, first of all, I don't think people are going to give up like at the door delivery, just like magically in 30 years. I, I but they will I, if it's expensive. I mean, that's the point is that everything comes at a cost. And right now, one of the big reasons why local retail and local manufacturing has an insurmountable challenge is because we subsidize the transportation costs not just of Walmart, Target, Costco, and Amazon, but we actually make it harder for people to walk to the corner store and really, really easy for them to drive to the big regional big box. And as soon as that those economics switch and it starts to cost you more in time and more in actual real money to get there, uh, first, home delivery is going to make more sense. And then second, delivery to like a corner bodega kind of place. I mean, Ian Rasmussen and I talked about this years ago, and he said, you know, Amazon is basically like the urban level of the field with the suburbs, because he said there were times in the past where they would have to like drive. He lives in New York. They would have to drive out to like the big box store to get things that they couldn't get in New York. And he said, now with Amazon, bam, I order it. It's there in an hour or two hours. You know, it's, it's really quick. It makes living in an urban area 
much easier for a family, much easier for people than it did before. And it, it lessens that push to move to a place where you can access these consumer things. I'm, diapers, well, we'll never, et cetera, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to be clear, my family uses Amazon. It is a point of contention at Christmas and Hanukkah, trust me. Um, but we, um, I will never argue that Amazon doesn't make lives easier or cheaper. I mean, like there are, I have family that live in like semi-rural areas that have the exact same problem as Ian in New York. Um, Ian, our board member, I should say. So yeah, he's our board member, him. right? Yeah. Um, the issue is, yes, it's efficient, but is it productive? Um, I don't know what the laws are in Minnesota or in New York, but in Missouri until January of 2017 and like four whole months ago, um, Amazon made paid no, no one who bought on Amazon paid any sales tax. Um, furthermore, Amazon had no fulfillment centers um, that we had built. So they're paying no property taxes. That's a pretty hefty subsidy subsidy for one model to have. If you believe in the free market and you believe in like the cost of doing business, one company that's managed to completely avoid contributing to the public sphere, like that's, that's a pricing advantage that they have over local business. If we're at Stonktown's going to talk about how we should support like a completely inefficient um, block of liquor stores and pawn shops that like instead of the taco john next door why on earth would we support the thing that's doing even less than the taco john next door which is just basically contributing nothing to city coffers i hear that argument and i find it very interesting and i find it interesting because i think it assumes that our tax system right now like makes any rational sense i mean i've I've written many times about how a, a model based on the sales tax is corrupting distorting and uh and unhealthy I actually think that what needs to happen, because I, th- I think you're right. I mean, one of the big problems about Amazon is that they they utilize all the public largesse and don't contribute to it. I mean, this is one of the best arguments about Walmart, too. I mean, when you have Walmart employees that have to get medical assistance because their wages are so low, are we consumers really benefiting from low, low prices? Not Not yeah. really, right? And I will say that Amazon's labor practices are not significantly better. They're right. relying increasingly on contract labor. I'm sure. Well, and robots too. I mean, I'm and I, robots. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I get it. Uh, to me, you know, the answer to that is to say, I think cities need more flexibility in their local uh, taxing authority. And I mean, I can see cities building in taxes uh, to essentially tax those types of transactions. To me, that makes way more sense than, you know, trying to fit them into a really bad tax model now that is dependent on consumerism and dependent on, uh, you know, all kinds of unhealthy, you know, the big box kind of stuff. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to push them into that model as much as I'm saying, let's have a model that makes sense and then figure out how to generate the wealth off, you know, basically tax the wealth off of that needed to keep the system running. I feel like Amazon has done a brilliant job of avoiding taxes. And sometimes we, you know, there's, there's one mindset in this country that applauds that as being virtuous. There's another mindset in this country that denigrates that as being somehow nefarious. I'm kind of agnostic on that. I feel like here's the rules we've set up. Here's a team that has, you know, put together something that fits in those rules that maximizes for them. If we don't like that outcome, then let's change the rules. And, and to me, I feel like, you know, Amazon 
is really good. Like Walmart is really good at exploiting the current set of rules. I'm not a big fan of those types of exploitations and I'd like those rules to change. I agree that the rules probably need to change. I mean, I haven't, I don't have very formed thoughts on the sales tax, but I'm, I've been reading more about it and reading your articles about it, Tack, and learning a lot. Um, but I'm, I think that it's hard for me to give them my dollar now before that, that change happens. And even with that change, if that change happens, I mean, this sort of goes to that piece you wrote the other day about, efficiency versus redundancy about Delta um, right, right. and about like when comp- like how we should leave it to the private sector to become as efficient as they can. Though I will point out that ironically your Delta piece came out on the same day as that United thing where we see the perils of efficiency. Well, but, I'm, but my argument on the private sector being efficient is that they can fail. Yeah. Right. Well, it, because I think hyper efficiency to me is synonymous with brittleness and fragility yeah, and failure. Absolutely. And yeah. my concern when I read that article was what about companies whose ambition it is to have as large a reach as the government? What happens when Amazon becomes so efficient that they control not only 40% of the online retail sector, but 80% of it and probably consistent, like a pretty serious like percentage of brick and mortar um, because all brick and mortar is established and there's like two lonely bookstores and a grocery store in India, <laughs> you know, what happens, the rules change for them at that point? No. Um, and maybe by way of, of wrapping this up, cause we are at our time constraint. I look back at like the, the Teddy Roosevelt days of trust busting. And I think like at the time there was a recognition that the way that, the markets in that society had been structured had become brittle, abused, exploited, and were having like really nefarious results. Uh, the monopolies and the monopoly pricing outcomes of that is something that I think we all look back at today and say, yeah, the, those changes needed to happen. I think today we are in a lot of the same situation whether it is banks on Wall Street or whether it's retail sectors, what we've done is we've created a series of economic incentives. And I would argue uh, through, you know, public policy action. I mean, I, I tend to blame government more for this than I think most, you know, people who are maybe corporate suspicious do. Uh, but I think there's this symbiotic relationship between government and corporations that has essentially allowed what are otherwise very fragile and brittle corporations to continue to exist beyond their natural life cycle. I think in a normal, natural, healthy market, we would have a lot of mid-sized players and very few massive, massive players. And so I would support like a round of essentially readjustment of our economy. And whether that included some type of modern trust busting, I think it would also include some type of regulatory reform uh, where we said, we don't want to have five Wall Street banks, we want to have 500. And even though that might not be as efficient, uh, it's going to be more redundant and resilient. So is that a common ground that we share that essentially? I think so. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I would say the reason Amazon hasn't come under fire for antitrust is because, well, two reasons. One, antitrust legislation in the U.S. is created to protect the consumer. And all they have done so far is slash prices for the consumer. Absolutely. Um, right. They won't always mark my words. Here's Kia's crops for the day. <laughs> um, not on everything. And the other reason is because antitrust law is structured around the idea that 
no one company should have control over an entire commodity or an entire service. We don't have antitrust that says like you own most of online retail. That's a problem. I think that there needs to be some legal challenges to it. Absolutely. And it would, but it would be a pretty fundamental and troublesome rethinking of our economy and how our laws interact with that. And I'm not a lawyer or an economist, so no prescriptions here. Let me ask you one follow-up question to this. And, and it's, this has come to me many times as we're talking here. I want to throw out a name and I want you to react to it. Tell me what you think of Google. Do you have the same? Because <laughs> I, I have to admit, I started out as a Yahoo person back in the uh, 90s. I invested in Yahoo was another one of my stellar investments that lost me tons of money. Oh. Uh, no, it was great. I, I tell you what, <laughs> if you're going to lose a lot of money, lose it early in life. Uh, when you can learn from it because it's relatively small amounts as opposed to learning those lessons later. These were in terms of like making me the strong towns advocate I am now losing a thousand dollars on Yahoo was a very instruct that, that was money well spent because it, it cued me in on a lot of things, but I, I made the jump to Google sometime in the early two thousands and I've not really looked back. There are times when I feel like Google is, I mean, they have not only all my search history from the beginning of time, they have all my emails back and forth to my wife, which, you know, I have good days and bad days. I would not want, you know, someday history to, to be able to go back and mine every email that I've, I've sent. You know, there's a lot of things about Google that, that make me a little bit uptight as being like the man, you know, do you have the same reservations with Google that you have with, with Amazon in terms of their reach and their scope and their, their ability to, you know, access your life in a sense? Sure. I mean, I will say that I, it's very possible they're a blind spot for me. I hope it's clear from this interview that I spent a lot of time reading articles on Amazon and reports. And I've tried to really put some thought and diligence into how I research them um, and have run up a bunch. There are arguments I used to make about Amazon that I don't make anymore. Um, if you can believe it, <laughs> but I haven't spent a lot of time researching Google and it's very possible that, you know, my, I wouldn't say that I necessarily support them because I don't think I pay for any services that Google provides, but maybe I do. But you I know, mean, the I, saying, if you're not paying, you're the product. Exactly. I'm being marketed to via Google. Right. So you, maybe you're not on. the consumer paying, but you're the, you're the product yeah. that they are charging someone else for. Definitely. I mean, I had a really interesting conversation with someone once who is a, who was a producer of maps and like someone who printed maps, like really beautiful travel maps. And the way that they talked about Google, what they had done to the map industry with Google maps with automation is like the way I talk about Amazon. And that was an uncomfortable moment for me. Cause I was like, wow, should I be like supporting my like locally sourced map maker <laughs> rather than like pop popping up on my phone every day because I'm completely directionally challenged and I require Google Maps to get anywhere like from like the corner of my house to the corner of my block. Um, but I don't know. I, I think the the thing is I would like to be more diligent about all of my choices as someone who participates in the citizen process. And I think that's what Strong Towns is about in a lot of ways. I think there are plenty of people who have never thought about the things that we're thinking about. And I mean, I'm not going to say this is like a matrix moment or anything like that, but maybe someday I'll turn the corner and take a blue pill and Google won't be my thing anymore, right, but I'm not right. quite there yet. It's, it's interesting because I, I will run into people who are very passionate about Amazon the way you are. And they're not equally passionate about Google, Apple, Verizon. 
I mean, we can go down the list of, of essentially people who have those same fragilities and those same impacts on your life. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as someone that, that's not necessarily a critique. I'm not like calling you out as a hypocrite as much as I'm saying it's an, it's an interesting dynamic because we live in this world now that has become huge and hyper globalized and very centralized. And we have very few players and no one has ever, I mean, we've never really been in a situation like this. And for someone who likes decentralization and bottom up and fine grain and chaotic, but smart, um, our world seems to be trending in the other direction. And I, I step back and say, you know, am I, am I just the old curmudgeon? You know, I'm not an old guy, but am, I, I, there's times when I feel like I'm my grandpa sitting on the porch going, everything's changing. And I don't, yeah. it's good, you know, <laughs> um, you know, and, and do, you know, millennials definitely seem more comfortable than with this than a, a Gen X person like me. Yet I've been on the forefront of uh, adopt. I mean, you've seen under our hood and all the technology we use. It's not like we're neophytes, you know, doing print in a, in a printing press, you know, <laughs> is the debate over Amazon just the most accessible and poignant thing to debate over when other things like Google or Apple or Verizon would be more abstract and, and, and difficult to, to have that conversation with or the federal government for that matter. I mean, I, I do see them a lot in the same ways. Yeah. That's such a hard question. Um, I mean, I think we could make ourselves very sad <laughs> if we spent a lot of time talking about the ways that are, well, actually I should, I shouldn't laugh this off. Um, we would both make ourselves sad and probably be pretty stupid <laughs> if we um, spent all of our time fetishizing our personal consumer ethics right. as if they were the key to solving the world. Um, I'm talking about this stuff, not because I want you Chuck around and like you strong trans listeners to think that I'm like the perfect consumer. And like there, my like record is absolutely spotless. I, you know, I would be living in the woods if that were the case. And then I would probably be stressed about stepping on a ladybug. Um, I'm, Occupying it because I'm think I'm talking about this because I'm trying to occupy a sense of what I believe. And this is something that with my personal story coming through books um, is a manifestation of those beliefs right now. And it will expand and change and grow as I do. And that's enough. Can I ask you a personal question? Mm -hmm. Sure. You don't have to answer this. Um, where <laughs> On the podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, where do you bank at? I have two banks. Um, I use a community credit union for mm -hmm. a lot of things. And then I have Capital One for the other ones. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm the exact same thing. I have a local oh, bank that I use for yeah. like most things. And then I also mm -hmm. use Capital One. Yeah. Are you like me? I use Capital One because it's like uh, flexibility ease. Their whole thing when they got me in was they're for the saver. And, you know, they were actually paying like an interest rate and yeah, yeah. But it's that. And it's also just like the practicality of it's really hard to transfer money in and out of a credit union. Right. They don't have technology. So I have to have it as a supplement, basically. It's, but, it's interesting yeah. because that, that relationship is where I see retail actually going someday. Where we have like a local thing that we prefer, we have a relationship with, and I can walk in and talk to them. They've been there for me when I needed a loan last summer to, you know, have two mortgages at the same time while I bought a different house. You know, they, they, they basically have made things work for me in a way that Capital One wouldn't or, 
Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank or whatever wouldn't. But I also need that other that other one as like a conduit to this larger world. Is that a fair analogy for Amazon? No, okay. <laughs> but we're going to fight to the death about this forever. <laughs> and this will be the longest podcast of all. This is probably the longest <laughs> podcast we've ever done. All right. Let me say thank you to uh, our listeners and thank you to you, Kia, for agreeing to do this. I hope that wasn't, I found that informative. That wasn't painful. Too. That was fun. All right. Thanks we'll do it again. Thanks right. everybody for listening and, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns with or without Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> at your <laughs> discretion and, and future debate. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.